Welcome to the Theological Touchpoints podcast. I'm Julian. The focus for this episode is Touchpoints at the intersection of biblical theology and everyday life. We're continuing our discussion on the doctrine of hell, this being the fourth episode on the issue. Uh, Previously in episode one, we gave an overview of the issue and a summary of the traditional view of hell. In episode two on conditional immortality, we defined what conditional immortality is, and then in episode three, analyzed it biblically. The previous episode, we looked at a biblical analysis of conditional immortality with the conclusion that conditional immortality is incompatible with Scripture. Going forward in this discussion, in this episode, we're going to look at Psalm 37 in depth. Psalm 37 is one of the key texts uh, used for the conditional immortality argument, or at least in my interaction with those who promote this. Psalm 37 verse 10 says, For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. And this forms a starting point for the argument of conditional mortality. And they say, see, it says the wicked shall be no more, therefore they cease to exist. Uh, Is this legitimate use of this text? I'm going to argue up front uh, that it is not, and we're going to give some reasons for that in this episode. In the next episode, we're going to be getting Greek, uh, looking at some of the specific Greek words that are redefined by those who argue for conditional immortality, and uh, we're going to be looking at a proper understanding of some of those words. And in the final episode, at least if things go according to plan, we'll be looking at the historical Anabaptist understanding, at least briefly looking at that uh, historical Anabaptist understanding of hell. I'll look at some of the consequences of embracing or tolerating conditional immortality and uh, give some directives on how we as Anabaptists should respond, especially Anabaptist leaders should respond to uh, these ideas in the church. If you pay any attention to the three focuses of this podcast, the first being foundations and the second being expositions, the third being touch points, what we're, what we're looking at today, you may be wondering why this doctrinal discussion on hell is running under the touch points focus, which deals primarily with practical ideas of theology. Why is it running under touch points rather than running under foundations, which is specifically about systematic theology? So why is it that we're looking at this under the touch points focus rather than the foundations focus? This may be better fitted in foundations, but foundations is dedicated to systematic theology, and I'm working my way through bibliology right now, looking at our understanding of what scripture is, And I didn't want to interrupt that series. Uh, We've done a lot of work so far and have a lot of work to do yet. Uh, We're moving into inspiration next, and then we're going to continue looking at other aspects of Scripture, looking at sufficiency of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, and the necessity of Scripture, and so forth. And I want to keep that series moving along. So I didn't want to interrupt that for this discussion on hell. Uh, The second focus, Expositions, deals with specific texts, not with broad doctrines, so it didn't really make sense to do it there. Touch points is kind of my flex focus, where I consider a variety of issues of present or practical significance. So touch points includes practical considerations and current issues in our culture. And so as I said at the beginning of this podcast, touch points is dealing with the issues at the intersection of biblical theology and everyday life. This discussion on hell was sparked by a current controversy on the issue in our conservative Anabaptist circles, so I thought it would be appropriate to host this discussion under the touch points focus. So again, touch points includes the the practical outworking of theological ideas, but it also includes uh, interacting and dealing with current theological issues in our Anabaptist circles. 
Just a reminder as well, I said at the end of the last episode that this series on hell is based on a full essay I wrote uh, on the issue, and that entire essay is available in written form, um, including some of the material that we're going to get to and haven't gotten to yet. So if you want to jumpstart on the discussion, or if you want to be able to uh, take in the entire discussion at one place, or if you prefer written form, or if you want to distribute it or any of that, uh, write me at podcast at theologicaltouchpoints.com, and I'd be happy to get you a copy of that essay. Again, full essay in written form, uh, dealing with the entire discussion um, as I'm presenting it here in the podcast. So, moving ahead into our interaction with conditional immortality and our analysis of it. One of the foremost scholars promoting conditional immortality is a man by the name of Edward Fudge. In 1982, Fudge wrote a book entitled The Fire That Consumes, a Biblical and Historical Study of the Doctrine of Final Punishment, in which he argues for the conditional immortality understanding of hell. He continued to promote that understanding for the next 35 years. He gave a lecture on hell in 2011, in which he argues once again for the conditional immortality view. It is a compelling presentation. He is kind and clear, and he uses a fair amount of scripture and historical reference. It is easy to be swept away by his presentation if you aren't well-grounded biblically. I believe both his analysis and his conclusions are incorrect, and we're going to look at one of the reasons for that in this episode. A fatal flaw in his approach is his elevation of Old Testament language over New Testament language. He prioritizes verses like Psalm 37, verse 10, For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. Prioritizes verses like this and filters the clearer New Testament language through that text. And he argues that the wicked shall be no more. That phrase means that they will be destroyed, they will be annihilated. But does that square with the rest of Scripture? As I've attempted to show, and we're going to continue talking about It does not fit. It is not compatible with the rest of Scripture, and especially the New Testament. And this issue of how do we understand the Old Testament relative to the New Testament, how do we fit them together, Uh, do we just read the New Testament, Um, and how do we think about the entirety of Scripture as Christians? This issue is one where there's a fair amount of confusion and uh, different ideas of how believers are to view the Old Testament So Fudge elevates some Old Testament passages, I would say, over the New Testament, interprets the New Testament, misinterprets the New Testament based on his understanding of the Old Testament. And my understanding is the New Testament gives greater clarity, greater specificity uh, than is present in the Old Testament. The Old Testament reveals a number of things in general terms, and those general terms are further clarified in the New Testament. So by saying he prioritizes the Old Testament, and by critiquing that, I'm not saying that we should disregard the Old Testament or unhitch it from the New Testament, as Anley Stanley suggests. Rather, I'm saying that in terms of progressive revelation, God reveals the seed of a concept in the Old Testament that isn't fully defined until the New Testament. Uh, Let's look at a couple examples of that. Uh, One we've looked at already. The word sheol is used in the Old Testament of the grave, and it simply means the place where all the dead go, whether righteous or unrighteous. That doesn't mean there's one destination. Rather, it means the language isn't concerned with distinguishing the different destinies, but simply serves to speak of death and the place of the dead. 
The distinction comes in the New Testament, where we're given paradise and Hades, and then the eventual destinations of heaven and hell as two different ends, two different eternities, two different futures, two different destinations uh, for the righteous, the righteous in heaven and the wicked in hell. Another example is the central theme of Scripture, that is Christ himself. Throughout the Old Testament, we are given types and shadows that point to Christ, but we don't understand who Christ is in full clarity, in full color, until we come into the New Testament. Uh, Peter talks about those in the Old Testament, the prophets, who were looking into the law, trying to understand who Christ was going to be, trying to understand this, looking forward, looking ahead, but not understanding in every way what it was God intended to do in Christ and through Christ. Uh, Hebrews 10 also speaks of the law this way. The law was given as a shadow of the good things to come. So there are things that are depicted in a general sense in the Old Testament, a general sense in the law that point toward Christ. And while we can't understand who Christ is in full color simply from the Old Testament, with the added revelation in the New Testament, we can look back into the Old Testament and say, okay, that's what's going on here. This is what was indicated. This is what was meant by this text or another. And the law itself pointing to Christ. Christ is the substance indicated by the shadow of the law. This same pattern of a general revelation in the Old Testament that is clarified and specified in the New Testament proves true of many Old Testament themes. And again, I'm not saying the Old Testament is unclear. I'm not saying the Old Testament is fuzzy. I'm not saying we can interpret the Old Testament however we want. I'm simply saying in terms of progressive revelation, God revealing his character in waves and and revealing more of himself as revelation continues throughout the Old Testament and then the full revelation in the New Testament. Uh, God revealing himself various times in various ways in the past, Hebrews chapter 1 says, has revealed himself now in Christ in the fullness, in a full clarity, full color. So we can understand what's going on in the Old Testament, but we can only understand it correctly with the light that's given to us in the New Testament. So there's a pattern of general revelation in the Old Testament that is clarified in the New Testament. I'm not saying this is always the case, but the general pattern is that the New Testament gives the image in full color, where the Old Testament only gives a black and white outline. So in this discussion on hell, we must not elevate Old Testament passages that speak generally of the judgment of the wicked as destruction over New Testament passages that speak specifically of that destruction as everlasting destruction or eternal punishment, or as we looked at last time, torment that continues forever and ever. We must prioritize the clarity of the New Testament and understand the Old Testament in that light. So with all that in mind, let's take a look at Psalm 37. Edward Fudge uses Psalm 37 verse 10 as the starting point for his presentation on annihilationism. Again, that video I referenced earlier, the the lecture he gave in 2011, and my interaction with conditional immortality or annihilationism is largely interacting with it as it is presented by Edward Fudge in that lecture, uh, which is a summary of his 40 or so years of study on the issue. Verse 10 of Psalm 37 reads, Yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. Fudge interprets this as conclusively teaching that the wicked will be annihilated in the judgment. But is that what this means? The three rules of biblical interpretation are context, context, and context. 
In one sense, that's a way of emphasizing the importance of context in proper interpretation, but it also serves as a framework for proper exegesis. There are three layers of context that should inform our interpretation of any verse. First, we need to look at the immediate context, that of the verse itself and the verses immediately surrounding it. Second, we need to look at the context of the book. In the case of New Testament epistles, this means how does this argument fit in the broad theme of this epistle, of this letter, of this book, or this gospel? How does this fit in the overall story of what's going on here? In this case, the entire psalm, Psalm 37, serves as the broader context. So we're asking questions like, what is the main theme of the psalm? And how are the ideas in this verse talked about throughout the psalm? And third, we need to look at the biblical context. How does this verse fit together with the rest of Scripture? Where does this verse find its place within the broad context of Scripture? So let's look at each of these in order. The immediate context in this case is verses 9 through 11 of Psalm 37. These three verses are grouped together in the New King James translation, which indicates that they are one unit of thought. They read, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So, notice first that the psalmist is talking here in these verses about inheriting the earth. He is addressing God's chosen people, Israel, reminding them that God's blessings will only be experienced by the faithful. Those who trust in the Lord are those who will enjoy the promised land. Verse 9 says, those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. And again in verse 11, the meek shall inherit the earth. Those who are faithful will continue to experience God's blessing in the promised land, but the wicked have no such hope. God will establish the faithful in the land, but the wicked will be cut off. Verse 10, that coveted verse by annihilationists, is sandwiched between two verses that speak not of eternal destinies, but of the immediate consequences of rebellion against God. The wicked will have no inheritance in God's promised land. His place in the land will be no more. The second level of context is the entirety of Psalm 37. From the beginning of the psalm, David contrasts the futility of wickedness with the blessings of obedience, and he does so with physical blessings in view, specifically God's promise to his people to establish them in the promised land if they remain faithful to him. Do not fret because of evildoers, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass. Trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land, and feed on his faithfulness. The reward for faithfulness is security in the promised land. The judgment on wickedness is being removed from the land. That the promised land is the central theme is apparent as we continue through the psalm, as in verse 22, those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Also verse 28, the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The children and the children's children, the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of the wicked shall be removed from the land, shall be cut off. Off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. In verse 34, he says, He shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. All three of these contrast inheriting the land, Canaan, the promised land, with being cut off. The wicked will not dwell long in God's promised land, they will be cut off. 
The judgment on the wicked is not annihilation in an eternal sense. Rather, it is that God will remove them from the land of Israel. And we see this played out through Israel's history. When Israel rebelled against God, God brought judgment and removed them from the land. They were sent into exile. When they were faithful, God brought them back to the land and established them in the land. So those are the first and second levels of context. And then third, we need to ask how this text fits with other scriptures. What's the biblical context of this psalm? David's theme of the blessedness of righteousness and the futility of the wickedness is in many ways a reiteration of Deuteronomy 28. In Moses' final address to the children of Israel, he declares both God's promises to them if they are faithful and his judgment if they are unfaithful. Both of these, in keeping with Psalm 37 and with all of God's dealings with Israel, emphasize physical blessings. Notice Deuteronomy 28 verse 1. If you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today, then the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. After several verses promising various blessings, we find this in verse 9. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you. The Lord will grant you plenty of goods in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your ground in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. If they are faithful to God, God will establish them in his land. They will prosper. But alongside these promises for the faithful are curses for the wicked. Verse 15 says, If you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes which I command you today, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. What are these curses? The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to do, until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly. The Lord will make the plague cling to you until he has consumed you from the land which you are going to possess. Notice the similar language to Psalm 37. What are the consequences if Israel chooses wickedness? Destruction from God's promised land. The wicked will not enjoy God's blessings. But central both in Deuteronomy 28 and Psalm 37 is not eternal annihilation, but is annihilation from God's land. Contrasted with this destruction in both passages is God's promise to establish the faithful in the land. This entire scheme is more closely connected to God's promise to Abraham to give him the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. Which of his descendants will inherit the land? The faithful. The rebellious and wicked are cut off, having no part in God's promise to Abraham. And we find this to be true throughout Israel's history. When they are faithful to God, he blesses them and preserves them in the land. Israel was never more blessed than when they were faithful to God. And when they abandoned him, they suffered every curse God promised they would. So does Psalm 37 verse 10 teach the annihilation of the wicked? Yes, it does, in the sense that the wicked were annihilated from the land of Israel. But it does not teach annihilation in any eternal sense, other than perhaps foreshadowing the greater spiritual condemnation that will come on the wicked. Using this passage to prop up conditional immortality is improper exegesis. Even the text itself resists that interpretation. 
The consistent clarity of the New Testament helps us understand this psalm properly, and I'm not going to reiterate that now. We've covered that in the past. We're going to get back into that in the next episode. But I believe Scripture, especially the New Testament Scriptures, are clear that hell is an eternal, conscious torment experienced by those who rebel against God as the just consequence for their sin. Uh, No one will suffer in hell beyond what they deserve for their sin, for the rebellion against God. It's a just judgment experienced in hell, but it is eternal, and it is a torment, it is a suffering, it is a judgment. So we understand from this psalm that there are consequences for rebelling against God. The wicked are cut off from the land, the righteous are established. And there are consequences for wickedness. In physical Israel, the righteous were established in God's land, and the unrighteous were destroyed. The New Testament expands that idea, teaching that the consequences of rebelling against the thrice holy God are not just temporary, they are eternal. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Theological Touchpoints podcast. This podcast is a production of Sword and Trumpet Ministries. For more information, visit swordandtrumpet.org slash podcast or theologicaltouchpoints.com slash podcast. If you have thoughts or questions, you can contact us at podcast at theologicaltouchpoints.com. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it.